We're continuing our series through the book of Revelation, and uh, today we're going to get into the letters to the seven churches in chapters two and three. And there's no way I can do all seven churches in one Sunday. It's not in my nature to be that terse and concise. So uh, we're going to take about three of them today. Where we've been so far, we talk Revelation is kind of a special book. It's different than most of what we find in the rest of the Bible. And it speaks in a different sort of language. And it's a language that's kind of hard to understand at first because it's highly symbolic language. And we met the first pieces of symbolism here last week in chapter 1, verses 9 to 20, where John hears Jesus speaking to him. And he turns around and he has a vision of Jesus walking among seven lampstands, which represent the seven churches of southwestern Asia Minor. Those are the churches that these letters are to in just a moment. And we see this, John describes what Jesus looks like for us. And we mentioned last week that, you know, really John's trying to put into words what cannot be contained by words. So he gives us pictures of what Jesus looks like. And Jesus looks like a son of man. He's like a human being, but also somewhat different, hearkening all the way back to Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel has a vision of a son of man getting rule and dominion and authority from the ancient of days. And then it says he's dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest, emphasizing his glory and his authority. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, just like the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7, reminding us that Jesus isn't just a human being. He is fully human, just like you and me, but he's also much more. He is God himself. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, which reminds us that all of the impu- there's no impurity in Jesus, because that's what you put bronze into the furnace for. His eyes, I like this one, are like blazing fire, like blazing fire. He sees, absolutely. He's not in need of light, right? His eyes themselves have light. And also, if you see a guy with eyes of blazing fire, you think, that guy seems like someone who's got some authority to pass judgment. This is who Jesus is. It says, his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. He speaks, and it's an overwhelming experience. And his face is like the sun shining in all its brilliance. You get the sense that John can neither look at Jesus nor look away. He has to do it, even if, even if his eyes leave an afterimage or if he never sees again. This is the Jesus that he's looking at. He's a little bit differently described to us than he was in his first coming, isn't he? Remember Jesus' first coming, right? It's a holiday, Christmas. Uh, It's a holiday because of Jesus coming, not Jesus wasn't born on Christmas and, you know, something else. But he was different in that, wasn't he? There he was a baby in a manger, as humble and as vulnerable as anyone can be. And now we see the flip side of his character. He is beholden to no one. He is in danger from no one. He is the one to whom we all answer. And both of these things are true about Jesus. He is as approachable as the baby in the manger and as terrifying as the guy. It says that he actually has a sword coming out of his mouth. Probably not a guy you want to mess with. And this Jesus has a message for his churches. 
I mentioned last week, it's not a coincidence that he chooses seven churches. In Hebrew thought, in Jewish thought, seven is the number of something being complete or full, having everything that it's supposed to have. So Jesus didn't choose seven churches and say, I want to write letters to you. Oh, you know, look, there happened to be seven of them. Jesus says, no, I have a message for the whole church, for the complete church. And he expresses it by communicating to seven churches in particular. These seven churches together give us a peek at what it's like being the people of God throughout time and history and space. No matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, there is a message for us in the letters to the seven churches. So let's jump right into it. Uh, this, this week, I want to talk about what do churches need to give up? What do churches need to give up in order to be the lampstands whom Jesus walks among? The lampstands that really communicate who Jesus is to the world. Because that's what lamps do, right? They give light. And Jesus said about the church, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill can't be hidden. I don't know if you've noticed this. So I, I grew up in the Seattle area, and then I lived in Los Angeles for a number of years, twice. The two best days of my life were the two days I moved out of Los Angeles. And uh, in Los Angeles... It's never dark. Have any, any of you been there and noticed that? It's never dark in Los Angeles. The sky is always some darker or brighter shade of orange, right? Because the smog in the day makes it orangey. And at night, all the light coming up into the sky from the city that sprawls forever and ever it makes the sky look kind of orange. Now, I have a, at home a, a telescope, and I, I have binoculars that I use for astronomy. You can't do astronomy in Los Angeles because you, you can count the stars, and you know, they say, oh, try and count the stars in the sky. If you're in L.A., you can count them, right? There's like six because those are the only ones you can see because of the brightness of the city. And I think, obviously, Los Angeles isn't built on a hill. It's built in the valley down below the San Gabriel Mountains and all the rest of the hills there. But I think this gives us a sense. You can't miss a big city that's full of light, can you? And Jesus is saying, church, you're to be like Los Angeles, only good. I apologize if anyone online is watching from Los Angeles today. We love you. You are to be the light of the world in a city that can't be hidden. So Jesus says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the leadership of the seven churches. And he walks among the seven golden lampstands. He walks in your church. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. Man, I wouldn't mind if Jesus said that about our church. That would be awesome. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. What does that mean? Ephesus had forgotten their first love, and commentators honestly are divided on exactly what this means. Some people think it means that their love toward Jesus is cold. Some people think that their love toward each other is cold. 
But I think that G.K. Beale is right when he links this passage to Matthew chapter 24, verses 12 to 14. Jesus said, Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Well, it sounds a lot like Ephesus in a lot of ways. First of all, Jesus has said, you are persevering. You're standing firm, but they're still missing something. Their love had grown cold. Jesus goes on to say, in this gospel of the kingdom, this good news about me as your king will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. See, I think Jesus is saying, you've gotten so concerned about keeping yourselves pure that you've forgotten to reach out to the people around you who don't know me. You've forgotten to love those people, and by doing, you for, by doing so, you've forgotten to love me by telling them, you are my subjects as well, and I am your savior. You haven't become, you're no longer a people who give a message of gospel, of good news, but rather people who give a message of condemnation. And we know what this is like, don't we? As we move farther and farther away from the idea of Christendom, the reality of Christendom, a, a culture in the West that had Christianity as its cornerstone, where it was possible to be a cultural Christian rather than a Christian in fact, right? Because just it was the way everyone was behaving or everything everyone was doing. In that kind of world, it feels like we could spend all day just calling out what's wrong with everything, doesn't it? Maybe you found yourself doing exactly that same thing. Here's what's wrong with the world. Isn't that an easy message to give? It's so easy to give criticism. It's so hard to give compliments. Have you noticed this in your relationships with people? When someone makes you mad, like the words just come, don't they? They're right there, ready to be spoken. And the wiser among us don't speak them, and the ones who are still growing to be like Jesus do. But when you feel a deep sense of love for somebody, isn't that a lot harder to say? What a strange thing. I mean, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm the weird one here. You guys are all looking at me judgmentally. I can see it. But I, I think it's true. We get this feeling, I just love you. And it's hard to put it into words, isn't it? It's much easier to criticize than it is to compliment. But the church is a lampstand. Jesus has compared us to a lampstand. We exist not to be a museum of the holy, but to be ambassadors for Christ. When I was a kid, I went to a sleepover for a birthday party. We stayed up late, because that's what you do. You make your parents angry the next day by not getting any sleep the night before. And this was, uh, while we were up late, and, you know, we had the TV on, and a Nirvana music video came on the TV. Now I recognize for most of you, Nirvana is not part of your generational upbringing and growth. But if you, maybe you've heard of him. Nirvana, their lead singer was a guy named Kurt Cobain. And Kurt Cobain, uh, Nirvana was one of the most influential bands of the 90s. And Kurt Cobain committed suicide uh, at the height of their popularity. And they were actually a Seattle band as well. So it was in my backyard that all of this happened. And people, it was like, you know, when John Lennon was shot. Maybe that's something everyone can understand a little bit better. Right? There's just this feeling of despondency and despair and depression among all the people who, who were connected to Nirvana somehow. And a Nirvana music video came on that night. 
And one of the guys uh, there at the party, he loved Nirvana, and he was devastated that Kurt Cobain had died. And during the music video, a scene of Jesus on the cross appeared, and I was disgusted. It's like, I know what kind of man Kurt Cobain was. Jesus doesn't want anything to do with them. And this young man told me he's showing respect for Jesus by putting him in here. And I remember what I said to my shame. Jesus doesn't want the respect of a man like Kurt Cobain. See, that's what happens when we lose our first love. That's what happens when our inner purity is more important to us than the lost and the dying. It took me a while to realize the import of what I'd said and just how foreign it was to the spirit of Jesus who came to seek and save the lost. I'd give anything to go back to that moment and slap myself silly and stop myself from saying those terrible things and change the heart that it came from. And God gave me mercy and grace to repent from it. And now his word over me that I'm forgiven is enough. But even today, I still offer that moment to God in prayer, desperately praying for redemption and resurrection, asking that beyond forgiving me, he would make it right with the boy I so badly spiritually injured. See, we can't lose our first love as a church. We can't get so concerned with what everyone else is doing wrong. We can't get so concerned with being right that we lose the spirit of Jesus that loves the lost and seeks them out, that eats with sinners, that isn't afraid of being made impure, but instead by his presence makes people pure. But we can't make the opposite error either. We can't be witnesses to Christ if our lives don't look like his. And that takes us to the next church this morning, the church in Pergamum. We're skipping the church in Smyrna for next week. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, sharp double-edged sword. That can't be good, right? I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you, may, you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who is put to death in your city where Satan lives. You get what he's, they're the opposite of the church in Ephesus, where the church in Ephesus became so inward focused on getting it right that they forgot to love the people on the outside. The church in Pergamum loved the people on the outside deeply. That's what they got right. Nevertheless, Jesus said, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. See, the church must not sacrifice holiness in order to get along with the world. The church is a witnessing church, but our testimony, our witness, isn't worth very much if we can't actually live it in our lives. Let me tell you a little bit about Balaam, who Jesus references here. 
when the people of Israel were making their way into the promised land, there's this crazy interlude in the book of Numbers where uh, the king of Midian hires a guy named Balaam, who everyone knows, this guy is a prophet, he is in touch with God, and Balak says to Balaam, I want you to come out to me, look at the Israelites, and curse the snot out of them so that they won't come into our land. And so uh, Balaam, he gets on as he, God tells him, no, I don't want you to do this. Balaam doesn't listen. He gets on his donkey and he starts riding uh, to go to the king of Midian. And on the way, this is a famous story, uh, Balaam's donkey stopped because Balaam's donkey sees that there's an angel with a sword on the way. And the donkey's afraid and he won't go. And Balaam's yelling at his donkey, and he's cursing his donkey, and he's beating his donkey to try and get it to keep going. And finally, God opens the mouth of the donkey, and he says, dude, I think. It's probably something like that. <laughs> dude, there is an angel with a sword up there waiting to take you out. Like, I am saving your life, man. This is all paraphrased according to Ian. <clears throat> and Balaam realizes he's in big trouble. And God says, okay, go to Balak, but you can only say what I tell you to say. So three times, Balak brings Balaam before the people of Israel. They're, looking, they're up on a hill looking down at the, the people of Israel camped in the valley. And Balaam blesses them three times because those are the only words that God will give him to say. And the king of Midian's pretty ticked, right? <laughs> I'm paying you to curse my enemies and you're blessing them. So Balaam does all of this, but then... Then, a little later in the book of Numbers, we find that there's this strange incident where the people of Israel go down to where there's this, this pagan worship festival happening, and you know, there are all sorts of naughty things going on down there, including lots of people having religious sex with each other, and Israel participates in this, and God then judges his people. And then we find in Numbers chapter 31, let me actually go there uh, for a moment. I'll stop uh, paraphrasing here. In Numbers chapter 31, the Lord said to Moses, take vengeance on the Midianites for the Israelites. After that, you will be gathered to your people. It's the last thing Moses is going to do in his ministry. So Moses takes the people to battle, and in verse 7, they fought against Midian as the Lord commanded Moses and killed every man. Among their victims were Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian. I'm glad we can throw all those names in there. They also killed Balaam, son of Beor, with the sword. And the connection that is usually made is that Balaam is the one. He understood who Israel was, God's special call on their lives. So when he couldn't curse the people of Israel, he told the king of Midian, would you go throw a party down below? That they'll look down and say, oh man, that looks like a good party. We want to join in. And Jesus is saying, you know, in the church of Pergamum, you have the same sort of thing going on. You have people, you, you see what's happening in the rest of the world. You see what it costs you to become Christians. And it really does cost something, right? There are real do's and don'ts in our faith. They aren't what make us right with God, but they're, they're what help us to relate with God and connect with God. They're real do's and don'ts in our faith. And they're real sacrifices sometimes. And there are people in the church of Pergamum that say, we don't need to make those sacrifices. Again, uh, G.K. Beale says, in Pergamum, there are all these uh, trade guilds. And all these trade guilds, you can't do business 
uh, as in the trade you're in unless you're part of the guild. And the trade guilds have festivals involving celebration of patron deities through feasts and sometimes uh, what Buell uh, calls in a PG way, immoral activities. Refusal to participate in these activities could result in economic and social ostracism. You could lose your ability to work. You could lose your friends and your family if you didn't go and take part in these sorts of things. But the problem is God said this is part of what it means to follow Jesus. You do the things that Jesus did, and Jesus doesn't do those things. Jesus doesn't worship other gods. He is the only God. Jesus doesn't go and treat sex like it's a cheap thing. That you can just do it however you want and wherever you want. Jesus doesn't, and, and it's not just those things. Jesus doesn't neglect the poor. Jesus doesn't forget the hurting. Jesus doesn't talk badly about all the other jerks in the other trade guild behind their backs. You can't have it both ways. Who are you going to follow? And folks, these pressures to compromise, they're still here, aren't they? These pressures that we feel sometimes, like some of the things that we believe as Christians are not popular. They've never been popular, as a matter of fact. Sometimes uh, that actually makes a difference in our life, doesn't it? Sometimes we're standing in the gap somewhere. Someone says, what do you believe about this or that thing? We know, well, I can say the, the popular thing or the unpopular thing. And which are you going to do? Sometimes in our jobs and in our work, we see we have to make choices about whether we're going to be honest in the things that we do, Right? Uh, when I worked at the old spaghetti factory, when I lived in Los Angeles as a servant, uh, I remember, uh, you know, we were tipped employees, of course, and so people would, uh, we had to report our tips at the end of the night, and uh, I was told when I came in, hey, uh, everyone just reports 10% of their gross sales as tips, so we need you to do that, and if you don't do that, we can all get audited. Right? If, if you have an outsized, if you report tips much greater as a proportion of your sales than everyone else, the IRS could notice, and they can come audit us all. Well, so am I going to do the easy thing, what everyone else is doing, and everyone kind of winks at, right? Or am I going to be honest about reporting my tips? Am I... going to do life like people do apart from Jesus Christ. You know, one of the big things that I see in these days, see, I, I want to guard us here. As we look not to not compromise with social expectations that are sinful, we need to be careful not to lose our first love like Ephesus, right? Because that's the other direction that we go so quickly. If I, you know, if I have to not compromise, I just need to make sure I'm right about everything. But Jesus is saying we have to be better than that. We have to be careful not just to yell louder about sin. One of the things I see happening in these days is that many of us are angry. Many of us are angry. We're angry at the loss of good things in our culture. 
There's real destruction that's happening to really positive things. We are angry at those who are seeking power through fear. Anyone here ever complained about a politician? You don't have to raise your hand because I already know you do. <laughs> we are angry because we feel helpless to preserve and to protect. But folks, we rarely do anger well. James 1, 19 to 20 says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I have found that to be so true in my life. Uh, I'm not going to bring up a specific situation to protect the people involved, namely me, but you ever in an argument with somebody... And your temper's getting hot. And, you know, maybe it started out kind of like, like a normal discussion, but things just started getting more and more heated. And you get to a place, and, and you have a moment. And it's like time slows down. And you think, there are two things I could say right now. One of them will bring peace. And the other one will multiply our anger by like 10. You know which one I choose? Man, it's the multiply the anger by 10 sometimes. Oh, gosh. You know, just, I know I shouldn't say this. I know nothing good will come out of saying this. But I'm going to say it. And why do I say it? Because I'm angry. Because we don't make good decisions when we're angry. We don't love people well when we're angry. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it says... Be angry, but in your anger, do not sin. I mean, does he say that because it's unrelated? He's like, so, yeah, it's okay to be angry, but don't sin. And those are unrelated things. Or is he saying, you know, when you're angry, you're more likely to sin. So watch it. Because I'm pretty sure that's it. Be angry, but in your anger, do not sin. Then he goes on and says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Folks, have you been carrying anger for more than 24 hours? And I, when I say folks, I'm going to include myself in this too. I don't care what it's anger toward or what it's anger at. If you've held on to it and the sun's come back up, it's eating you up inside. It is breaking your heart and your ability to be like Jesus. Be angry and yet in your anger do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. What do we do instead? Right? Because it's one thing to say, well, stop being angry. Right? It's, it doesn't work that way, though, does it? But, well, I think the answer is right here. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, be slow to speak, and slow to anger. If you're angry, listen. And I know it's hard. I can't help that. But if you're angry... Begin by listening. Be quick to listen. Then what? Be slow to speak. You know, I, I remember being a kid, really little, 
And man, that temper can just go, can't it? And we, you know, we have kids ourselves. You've seen them around. Uh, and, and that's something we work with them a lot on. Like you get angry and you lose your temper and you start yelling and screaming. I, mean, I had never actually seen, I'd heard about this and like seen it on TV shows or something, but I'd never actually seen people jump up and down. They were so angry until I became a parent. I probably did it. My parents probably saw it, but I've conveniently blocked that out. And the advice we give to them is just slow down. Just slow down. Give yourself space. Take a deep breath. Count to 10. Count to 100. Count backwards from 1,000 if you need to. But if you let your anger tell you what to do, 99% of the time you'll make poor choices. The church has to give up compromise, yes, but without becoming like Ephesus. I really want to do Laodicea, but we're going to save that for next week so that we can keep moving here today. Jesus, when he comes to visit the churches, when he gives the message in Revelation 2 and 3, he's speaking to us today. And at least from two of the churches, he's warning us, don't get so concerned about your own purity that you forget to love the people outside you. And he says, secondly, don't become so concerned with loving the people outside you that you become exactly like them. You got to be like Jesus. You got to love him first. Right? That's why Ephesus is forgotten there. First love. Not just any or all love. Thanks for the emphasis. <laughs> now, that was just rude, whoever did that. Yeah. <laughs> if we can do these things, we're on our way to be in that city on the hill, to be in that light in dark places.